Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 51 to Dusseldorf. Hi, Alex. Hey, Dusseldorf. You know, I'm amazed that we haven't covered this before. That's a great airport. Have you been? Yes, I've been, but a long time ago. It's It's been rising now. You know, it's the third airport in a way for the Lufthansa strategy, you know, after yeah. Frankfurt and Munich. It's a very important airport because the region is very economically active mm. next to it. And you were there recently. Yeah, very you recently. I to threw, flew through there on the way to Cologne because it's much better connected. But uh, yeah, that's a great airport. I was so impressed by it. The airport that doesn't exist and uh, there's a white elephant for Germany is Berlin, oh uh, Brandenburg. <laughs> that airport is real. probably never been done. It's already, I think, six years past the date it was supposed to open and it's still not open. They've just pushed back the date again. They say now 2019, crying out I don't loud. Understand. Just... I mean, not to paint with broad strokes, but it's a very un-German thing. Yeah, I, we said that for when an we infrastructure project yeah, yeah, like yeah. this or any project, but I'm still not clear what the problem is. There were wiring issues. I mean, the things were not done on spec, or maybe they didn't respect uh, the uh, safety regulations. Oh, there and was a all... fire thing, wasn't there? Fire uh, yeah, they all fight. They all fighting each other to say who's at fault. But at the same time, the airport doesn't open. They just reshuffled again the management of that project. They just had hired a new head of project. They fired him. They took the old one back in, saying this guy has the memory. So it seems to be also very political. It's kind of crazy, right? I think today it's five years, so it'll be six to seven years behind schedule if and when it opens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's really a black eye for Berlin and for Germany because it's so uncharacteristic. I mean, so many of the airports are huge and sometimes unwieldy, but they are very good. I agree. The reason I mentioned Berlin is because ITB just happened. Uh, so ITB is one of these biggest fair with a lot of news are coming out of airlines because they all present new products. We're going to go over a few of them uh, during this show, which might be slightly longer than our usual one hour, uh, although we did last time an hour and uh, 10 minutes or something. <laughs> Why? Because we realized that Alex is going on holidays, basically, I think in two days or something. Uh, right? Yeah, Wednesday. We're, we're recording on Friday, uh, and on Wednesday, I, we all leave. Yep. And uh, then when you come back, I'll be away for work for at least seven days. So it might we might not be able to record for a full month. So we said, okay, let's let's not care about that one hour clock. We'll see. Uh, we might squeeze in another recording uh, before you leave. But if it's not happening, guys, this is what we're offering you more for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Berlin has two airports. You know, uh, Schoenfeld uh, in the south and Tegel in the north. I haven't been to them like in a long, long, long time. The reason I mentioned these two airports is because they were on strike whilst the ITB was happening. You have the biggest fair in the world, one of the biggest fairs in the world for uh, air travel, and they go on strike the same week. <laughs> so bad. But the big thing that was announced, so there's many things, but the big one that everybody was waiting for, Al Baker always exaggerating about these headlines. Well, for once, you know, he was promising us this new business seat for at least two, three years, and they finally revealed it, the Q suite. And yeah, you know what? Now I understand there's no need for a first class because it's really quite amazing. It looks really, really impressive. 
Yeah, for once he's lived up to the hype. I think Johnny Clark over the design air had a really pragmatic take on this, which is it sounds revolutionary, but the components of the product are not. But the packaging as an offering in business class is pretty revolutionary. So double bed in business class, sharing plate concept, and then this sort of communal area. You can reconfigure four seats to create this communal area for families or groups of four, I should say. And I think it's, it looks great. It looks really high quality. And I think uh, it will be extremely popular. I have, I have one thing, though. So you can create a double bed by basically joining uh, the two middle seats ones into a big one. So that, yeah. that's pretty cool, actually. I think uh, Al Baker said, uh, you can take your honeymoon on Qatar Airways, but you'll have to keep silent. Yeah. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Thank you, Akbar Al Baker. Uh, that, that I see happening because I've seen when I was flying a few times in very high-hand business class products, but also sometimes at Emirates when I was upgraded to first class, I've seen couples going on honeymoons. And of course, that would be a nice sell for a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Now, the reconfigurable chairs that create a meeting room, this is the kind of stuff that always is being touted, but I don't really see people wanting yeah, to do that. I think, don't you think? Well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about my family, like my wife and my two sons were flying to Hong Kong, uh, certainly not in business class, but I could see us using this this configuration for the entire flight. I think it would work really, really well. But I, I don't want to deal with anybody else <laughs> for, for, for that long. Or, 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 you know, how often are you traveling in groups of four that aren't your family? When, you know, I've been doing it in past travels when, I mean, I've traveled with you once for work, but it was a short haul, so it was not in these. But even, I mean, I like you very much, Alex, you know that. But if you were to travel for 11 hours, unless it was really a pressing matter to deal with, we'd probably be secluded yeah. and having our own thing and maybe working, yeah, maybe yeah, chat exactly. a little bit at the beginning, but not like going into a full work session. I don't really see that happening in the business world. I've seen that on short haul, but on long haul, I don't. I mean, it's great marketing to say that you can do that, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, great product, lives to the hype. We'll see. It's going to be actually fitted quite soon. Quite I think the first yeah. routes to take it actually will be from London, so we'll be able to see that. It will be on the 777, and then they will retrofit one existing 777 per month. So it's a quite a aggressive retrofit compared to, uh, let's say United and Polaris. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> let's stay in uh, Germany. Let's stay in Berlin. We got these kind of lists all the time. They're all with a different methodology. The world's worst airports this time, according to a website called eDreams. Schoenfeld, Berlin, number one, the world's airport in the world. Then goes Luton, LaGuardia, JFK, Brussels, but the second one is Charleroi. Lima, Campino in Rome, the second one. Uh, Tegel, again, Berlin. This is why I wanted to mention it. Uh, Charles de Gaulle and Orly. Uh, well, we said we are not big fans of. Any surprises there? I think it's a little harsh on JFK. Yeah. You know, again, like we said in, in recent episodes, JFK is improving very, very quickly. Luton, absolutely. That's a crap hole. It seems to be permanently <laughs> under construction on the inside. I'm, I'm not a fan. of. Although I just read an article recently that it's the busiest private jet airport in the UK. So I think they're doing something right. But yeah, I haven't been to half of these airports, so I can't comment. But on the ones I've been to, Luton, yes. LaGuardia, absolutely. Kennedy, I think is harsh. Paris, both Paris airports. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I've not been to Lima. That's uh, that's 15-hour flight from Emirates. Maybe we'll think about it and do it together yeah. and not on a Q-suite insta- so we can even have our... <laughs> not talk to each other 15 hours. No, I'm kidding. Uh, one quote that I found really fun about uh, Berlin, it was the co-founder of a startup called Creative.ai who says, um, Berlin's airports are a joke, no international direct flights, provincial service, regular chaos at peak times. In short, Berlin's airport are a perfect symbol for the capitals of European biggest and arguably most innovative economy, stuck somewhere between the future and the past. And I think it's actually a very good uh, analogy there. That is a nice uh, quote. Kind of sums it up very uh, concisely. So since we're on lists, the thing that happens every year, Skytrax, that's a very well-respected list. The best airports in the world. So let's not talk about the worst one, but the best ones. Voted by air travelers, or by people like you and me. So there's always a bit of um, bias towards the airports that a lot of people fly to, obviously. Uh, I will go through the list of the first 10. Let's do it. Uh, Shanghai, Singapore. Haneda, who went from fourth to second, that's actually very nice. Incheon, Seoul, it was second, is third. Munich, Hong Kong, Hamad, so Doha. Nagoya, Zurich, Ethro, Frankfurt, that's the top 10. And then uh, you go Amsterdam, which you were recently, is 11. Mm-hmm. And Kansai, which you might go to uh, soon, yep. is 12th. The first airport in North America is Vancouver, 13th. That's pretty good. Narita, which we spoke about last weekend. By the way, I want to say, I I actually love that airport. I don't want people to have this this idea that I don't like the airport because I was maybe not overly enthusiastic (laughs) about it. It's number 14. Cape Town which you recently went to, is 19. The first U.S. airport is, uh, I've never been to it, Cincinnati, Kentucky, uh, 26. No, not Have you ever I. been there? No, I'm very surprised. Have you been to Denver, number 28? No, I haven't. Yeah, I see. But these are the two ones that are a bit of a bright spot uh, for the U.S. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that list? Yeah, I'm. I think it reflects some of the things. I was a little surprised about Haneda being second. I think it's a yeah. functional airport, but it's nothing... Yep. Compared to Hong Kong or or some of these other or Incheon or even Amsterdam, I was I like Amsterdam Airport. When you did the Doha trip, you talked about so much of the improvements that they've done on it, and it clearly yeah, it's, is, it's, is it's, yeah. showing in these that they've jumped yeah. four places. Yeah. I think it's harsh to have San Francisco at 39. I think San Francisco is a good airport. I think where it probably loses a lot of points is because of the weather. So there's always ground stop delay oh, programs. So I bet you they lost points on that. But functionally, especially the international terminal, I think it's a good airport. But generally, I love to see Lucy. Tiny little airport, number 36. Oh, that's good. Madrid? Where's Madrid? 31? (laughs) Nonsense. (laughs) When you talk about delays, I mean, we have a lot of fog at Heathrow, so that could also hit it. It's still number nine. It was number eight last year. Interestingly, Skytrax does subsets of this kind of voting, and I want to go a little bit. I know uh, maybe these lists don't mean always something, but they find it interesting. The world best terminals, and I think this is most interesting because some airports have, you know, brand new terminal and some other terminals that really suck. Munich, Terminal 2, uh, so that's the uh, Lufthansa one, is number one. Ethro Terminal 5, surprisingly, is number two. I would have not putting it so high because I find it that it's overcrowded. Shanghai Terminal 3 is at third. Terminal 2 of Ethro at fourth. And then you won't like it. Madrid uh, T4 is number They're five. They're out of their minds. <laughs> Haneda, the international terminal, six. The Terminal 2M of Paris Charles de Gaulle at 7, I don't agree with that one. T3 at Dubai, 8th. Uh, T2 at Mumbai, I've been only once, 9. 
and Shanghai Hongkuo Terminal 2 is 10th. I mean, I, I prefer, I don't know about you, but this list is better because some terminals are really vastly different yes. in, the similar, in the same airport. Absolutely, yeah. You compare, like you said, Terminal 3 to Terminal 5 at Heathrow. Those are very, very different experiences. And Terminal 2 is, for you guys who have been and will be, it shows a bit of the future of Heathrow mm-hmm. because that's the layout that you'll see in pretty much all terminals, Terminal 6, when it'll finally release, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, World's most improved airports. So that doesn't mean anything because you could be a very crappy airport that just improved. Yeah. First is Jakarta International in Indonesia. And like you said, Hamad in Doha is number two. Uh, then we have Houston, number three, Delhi, four, uh, what, Guangzhou in six, Narita at eight. Actually, people thinking of telling you last week that Narita has made a lot of efforts to improve the passenger experience within the bands of the airports, and that shows. Paris, number nine. I, I, I have to flow again. Maybe maybe <laughs> I'm wrong about this one. And LA, number 10. LA, one of the most Yeah, you know, the times I've been through LA recently, it feels like it's getting better. I liked it last year. Uh, I did. I mean, I, I did only two terminals. The one where Virgin America was, I think T4, whatever it's called, and uh, the international one, the, I don't remember T-B. the name of it. Yeah. World's uh, best airport shopping. Ether number one. I'm not actually too surprised because there's a lot of shopping there. Uh, Seoul yeah. number two. Hong Kong number three. Shanghai number four. Uh, Doha again number five. Dubai, Amsterdam, Paris, Frankfurt, Zurich. Yeah, pretty much. I don't do shopping. You do shopping a lot at airports? Not really. I think only time, because we pay 20% VAT here in the UK, there's often times when duty-free actually takes a pretty good whack out of uh, out of things like that. But not no, not really. Yeah. Uh, one that I like, uh, best airport in terms of security screening. I think this is a nice one. Uh, Copenhagen, number one. Haneda, second, which could explain why it's so high in the major list. Yes. Nagoya, third. Zurich, Shanghai, Kansai. So lots of Japanese here. I told you they were very efficient. Hong Kong, Narita, Seoul, and Munich. No surprises there as well. Not a single American airport, obviously, yeah. <laughs> for security. <laughs> and not Ethro either. And for you, Alex, the best airport dining experience. Oh. Uh, first, you'll be very happy. Hong Kong. Uh, I no believe surprise. it. Second, Shanghai. Then Narita. Uh, Seoul. Uh, Doha. Kansai. Nagoya. Ethro. Uh, Houston. And Munich. So Houston. Have you been to Houston? Not in a very, recently. very long time. Not for at least Same 20 here. years. But now that I see it, number nine on the best airport dining, I need to. I need to. Go. Yeah, I mean, I believe it about Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a Michelin star restaurant in it. I'm not sure True. if there's any other airport in the world that has one. The good thing about Hong Kong is it runs the gamut, so you can get Michelin star, and you can also get some typical Chinese fast food as well, or Hong Kong fast yeah. food. And if that list was made by Alex, the simple fact that you have this burger place at LAX would actually put LAX almost to the top. Yeah, just to see. The- <laughs> That's very true. By the way, your attaché episode, since I just mentioned Cape Town, just came out. Wow, it's one of my favorites. Oh, thanks. I've never been there, but it's amazing. It shows that you not only know the place, but that you love the place. It's really amazing. Oh, thanks. I'm I'm proud of it. Greg Greg, uh, really smashed it on the episode, and it was nice to get... Some friends on camera, Kobus and Rich, uh, yeah. who, who I know listen to this show. So, And again, we couldn't have done it without them. Like, you know, you got to see the Thomas Cook product, which I was raving about a few episodes ago. So, yeah, no, thank you. It was, a, it was a fun episode. And it is a really, really good airport. I think we were just unlucky with our – when we arrived and immigration was a little bit slammed. But other than that, great airport. What other airport puts on, like, traditional dance, you know, displays in the departure lounge? Not, not any I can think of. 
JFK. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, by the way, uh, it was interesting at the end because, I'll, I'll, of course, now that I've seen the episode, I want to go. I've actually I've been in talk with Rich and Kobe. Uh, you mentioned that the best way to go from the airport, and you mentioned that in our episode as well, is to use Uber. Yeah. Uh, South African taxis just uh, block the road to <laughs> Uber to the airport. So it That's shows a that, common like, tactic you hint, around the world, isn't it? Yeah. But you hinted that in your episode that there's a bit of friction there. Yes. It's not completely settled, that kind of relationship. Uh, so U.S. airports are not very well shown in this list. The American Society of Civil Engineers uh, every year creates a report. They give grades to all types of infrastructure in the U.S. Aviation gets a D, so it's not great. And they say that increasing passenger volume at airports around the country could soon lead to Thanksgiving holidays level of congestion at least in 30 major facilities. It's, it's very up. worrying. Another list, and then we'll move on, guys, I promise you. The busiest airports, the list was released. And yeah, America on top. Atlanta is... Uh, it's an <laughs> extraordinary airport, Atlanta. A hundred million and four passengers in 2016. That's a lot. That's incredible. That's yeah. absolutely incredible. And it's it really is an amazing airport. I haven't, I haven't flown for like a long, long time there. Uh, Beijing, number second. Dubai, LA, Haneda, Chicago, Heathrow, Hong Kong again, Shanghai, Pudong this time, and Charles de Gaulle is number 10. I think there's a typo in this article because they have Heathrow at 25 million passengers. I assume they mean 75 million. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was at uh, travelandleisure.com. All the links will be in the show notes. Show notes that I sometimes, please forgive me, guys, I sometimes delay putting on because I fast-track the edition of the show and the release of the episode, and sometimes I don't have time to create the, the show notes. So please forgive me and harass me on Twitter if there's a link that you wish you had it that I haven't uh, given. So let's go back to Germany. We're in Berlin, um, to Lufthansa. They just announced a new business class seat for its uh, 777X. So the 777X is not coming in service before 2020, so don't rejoice too much. People who listen to the show will know that I don't fly Lufthansa long haul because I don't like their business class seat. We don't know a lot about it, but yeah, nice the, to hear that they're the doing something. The details that they sort of hinted towards in this article that was on hmgaerospace.com is tantalizing. They're saying that the IFE and the seat can all be controlled by your own smartphone or tablet. So it connects wirelessly, which in an ideal world sounds amazing. And, and the mock-up that they provided looks really, really cool. But I feel bad for the <laughs> flight attendants having to, and the cabin crew, do tech support as well. I assume there's sort of manual overrides built into the seat, but it's nice that airlines and seat manufacturers are thinking about the connected customer who will absolutely embrace this type of experience. And I think it's it's a nice glimpse into the future. And it's nice to see Lufthansa innovating as well. Isn't that the logical conclusion if we remove IFE and ask people to have their iPad, iPhones, and whatever the next thing, the next frontier is to say, oh, you want to control your seat, download yet another Lufthansa seat yeah. app? <laughs> Maybe, you know, that removes weight from the aircraft. I don't know. Uh, the one thing I will note, though, is that if you read the actual announcement by Lufthansa about the seat, they say... <laughs> that the seat has been developed. They don't say the seat will be developed. For me, I struggle a little bit with that because does that mean that the seat is already ready in 2017 and by the time is introduced in 2020, it might already be obsolete? I don't know. Maybe it's just a typo. Maybe it's just not what they implied, but... Yeah, that's I would a good question. That, I don't know. I would have thought that this is something that they are currently developing or starting to develop and not something that is already done. Yeah, it seems a little presumptuous on their part to design a seat so far ahead of the plane actually even flying. So, but you know, what? Well, who knows? 
Still on Lufthansa in the US, for those who live in the East Coast, there's a lot of snow, ice storms, mm. etc. So that delays a lot of flights. Lufthansa is not lucky. They wanted to introduce their Air 350 uh, to the US. And of course, it couldn't take off because of the snowstorm. So good luck, guys, if you live in the East Coast. That will apparently last for a few more hours. Let's go to your one of your favorite airlines, Cathay Pacific. You've flown Cathay Pacific in premium economy, yes, haven't you? Yes, it right? is an outstanding product. That seat is so comfortable. Was it the 350? Which it was the 777-300ER. So you'll be happy to know that they will actually change the seat. They will increase the legroom for the 777-300ER, the premium economy. They are matching the legroom that exists apparently on their 350. I've never flown Cathay Pacific, so I cannot judge. This um, is good news, as long as they don't mess with it too much, because that is an extraordinarily comfortable seat. It's easily the best premium economy seat I've experienced so far. So since we're talking about 777ER, and, and I'll go back to Cathay in, in a minute, but that was a story that I didn't know where to put in the show, so let's put it here. That story about that Swiss international yeah. 777 that flew from, I, I think, Zurich. It was supposed to land in the US somewhere. I don't remember now. The, I don't have the story in front of me. Uh, LX40, so just look it up, guys. And five hours into the flight, one of the engines just stopped working. Which, of course, international regulations calls that, you know, they can fly with one engine, it's not an issue. But if you are above water, which was their case, you need to reroute to the closest airport. The closest airport uh, was uh, an airport in the Baffin Islands. It's in Canada. It's in Nuvavut. It's um, in Inuit uh, province. The city has 7,000 people, so they have, to, they have to land that there. The temperatures there are just insane, between minus 22 to minus 40 degrees. If you had windshield, that's like minus 80 degrees or something. And they had to change a, an engine there. They did. And Popular Mechanics, and Popular Mechanics has been around for forever, but this is really what they excel at. They did this beautiful multimedia in every sense of the word, telling of this fantastic story of how this plane had to divert because the engine, as you said, just shut down. And they really do a good job of telling the story of how the problem came to light and what they did to actually get on the ground and then what they had to do to get off the <laughs> ground, which was, as you said, to replace the largest jet engine in the world in this remote part of Canada when it was 40 below zero. If they have the Swiss aircraft engineer who got news of that issue and he says, quote, my first thought was, where in the world is Equaluit? Yeah. Like, you know, I didn't even know. They had to actually charter an Antonov to fly the piece from Europe to, because GE didn't have that piece at that time, to that little remote place. And then all the teams converged, the Swiss teams, GE teams also converged, and they had to replace that thing in live conditions. And apparently what saved them is that they have this kind of tent yeah. that they put around the engine. That's And because it was so cold, at least that protected them. It's amazing. pretty amazing. So they could be out. Because I guess with the wind chill factor, it was minus 74, minus 76. <laughs> <That's crazy>. uh, <laughs> so God. so they, they had this incredible inflatable tent so they could stay outside for more than 15 seconds. So the flight took off on February 1st and was able to leave that place on February 9th. It's pretty, actually pretty quick. The passengers, of course, had to wait, I think, for about 15 hours uh, because there's like no hotel in that place. I mean, so they had to simply wait in the, in the aircraft. Swiss sent a 330 to take all of them on. Look, this little remote place in one day had a 777-300ER and a 330 land. That's 
not every day they must have that. No, right? <laughs> really just amazing. Amazing story. So let's go back to uh, Cafe. Since you love food, Cafe is trialing business class dining on demand. We, we talked about that for British Airways. As we said, very few airlines do this. They will try that in a few selected routes. It's only a trial for the moment. I think uh, Gatwick will get to Hong Kong to Gatwick. And then they will switch to Hong Kong to Chicago to test whether that service uh, works or not. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. As long as the cabin crew and the catering staff are all working in harmony, which judging from this article, it sounds like they've, they've spent a lot of time working on the logistics of this. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past, as you said, with British Airways and could see the advantage to the airline of people not just eating because the food's been put in front of them. There's a potential to reduce costs. And then, of course, they spin it as a, this is good for the customer because you can eat when you want. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what comes with this trial. It's only going to last a month, as you say, on, on a couple of, uh, of routes. So we'll see what happens. Um, I, but I don't think, have you ever been on a dine-on-demand service? Only first-class Emirates, which, you know, so I think I told this already. The first time I ever got upgraded, you know, I enter in the, you know, the 380 and, you know, it's the front door upstairs. And, you know, I wanted to kind of pretend that I know, you know, I've been there so many times. So, uh, you know, I was so, so first of all, what happens, I hit, I'm so tall, I hit my head because I was so like excited. I actually hit my head uh, on the door frame Ow. of the aircraft. So you have immediately like, you know, the staff, because, you know, of course, staff in first class is like, oh, sir, are you okay? And they offer me like you know water and a, a little towel and well anyway I sit on my, my my seat the flight takes off and you're like an hour 30 minutes it was like I think a 10 hour flight an hour and, and 10 minutes into the flight you know you, because it was a night flight it was like mm, getting antsy and so usually that's where they start kind of giving food and whatever so I ended up eating the you know the button the cold button and uh, she comes and I say well do you know what time you serve food and she's like Oh, you didn't know. It's on demand here, sir. And like, oh my God, I got caught. You understood that it was my first time. <laughs> but I mean, you know, again, it's like what, eight, 12 seats. Uh, so it's yeah, much that's easier easy to, to manage. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, well, it's fun. But it, you know what? At the end of the day, I've done only a few times that first class in Emirates. And uh, luckily, I'm very lucky for that. And I'm not sure it's going to ever happen again. Uh, but the one thing is that at the end of the day, you still eat probably roughly at the time that you would have eaten if you had delivered the food. Yeah, exactly. That's what I realized. Maybe it's just a habit, but you just want to sleep. So you're not going to wait like four hours into the flight to eat. I mean, no. I, I don't know. Well, that, that's kind of what I think as well. I'd be interested to see how this actually works. So Cathay Pacific, we mentioned that also in the last episode, they have issues. And for the first time since uh, 08, they've uh, posted losses. It's a loss of $70 million or something, if I remember correctly. They say the challenges are, of course, that Hong Kong has been cut out. That's probably, of course, Emirates. The, uh, Hong Kong used to be the stop where Australians would stop at to go to Europe, for instance, and now they stop in Dubai. So they say that. They said a uh, strong Hong Kong dollar was also uh, something that uh, put off a lot of people to come to Hong Kong. So yeah, the restructuring is coming. Yeah, I think they're going to have to do something because it's re it really is almost unprecedented. This is so unusual for Cathay. But you know, hopefully they can see the writing on the wall and, and react and restructure and look to the future. But I don't think that they're 
planning on getting out of this difficulty anytime soon. It's going to take a long time. They also mentioned the direct competition from Chinese carrier going international, and that will only increase. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's only uh, we we talked about this in the last episode with the aggressive acquisition and expansion of these big Chinese aviation groups, and that's not going to slow down. We still haven't heard anything about that rumor uh, regarding Air China and Cathay, and whether that will manifest itself in any way. Again, I'm still skeptical, but who knows? Since there are in an oblique way saying, you know, Emirates and others are eating in their market. Well, these guys are also suffering. We mentioned that many times in the past, like 10 episodes, that, you know, it's not the golden days anymore. Even Tim Clark said that a few months ago. And there was a, if you guys are interested, there's an interesting Gulliver, again, that op-ed in The Economist, uh, which has a very good overview of what happens with the three airlines. Etihad clearly seems to be the one that it's hit the most, but Emirates has just uh, pushed back the uh, acquisition of 12 new A380s. So they're waiting a little bit. They're putting that on hold for a few months. They did that in a response of a 75% drop in profit. Wow. Airways itself abandoned its plan to open a subsidiary in Saudi Arabia. What it means here, uh, and we know the story with uh, with uh, with Etihad and you know the new CEO, which is not yet named, means that the, these years of you know fantastic growth might have come to a certain end. Yeah, or at least slowed down. I don't think it's the end of the line for no, any of those of guys. Not. And I think that they've been very smart to invest and grow aggressively over the last ten years. And I think that they knew this was going to happen sooner or later. And I think that they've got the reserves necessary and the infrastructure and the passenger loyalty to weather this type of storm. And of course, we've talked about this many, many times in the past. All three of the hub cities for those airlines are geographically perfect for that perfect. transit. You yeah. know, So yeah. even if their share slips a bit, it's not like the tap is going to turn off overnight. By the way, Emirates and Qatar still are increasing capacity in this year by at least 7%. Only Etihad is reducing capacity. I just mentioned that Qatar has actually not done its subsidiary in Saudi Arabia. They are doing, though, a domestic career in India. It will belong both to Qatar Airways and the Qatar state investment arm, so basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but, you know, you know, India is a, it's a huge market. I mean, it, it will boom. Uh, the, the competition there is, is, is strange, let's put it that way. Our India has lots of problems. Some, you know, Indian magnets have tried and failed. Yeah. But yeah, well, why not? But there's this there's this new change in the law that happened last year. Reduces the restrictions on foreign ownership of airlines in India, which I think has opened the market. You've got what the heck are they called? The Singapore Airlines joint venture. Oh, uh yeah. You know what I'm no, talking I'm about? Uh, anyway, yep. uh, they have come in and I think you're not going to you're going to see more of this. Singapore Airlines created an airline there in 2015, and I think Air Asia was the other one who did that as well. So it's interesting you just mentioned these foreign ownership rules. So in India, it's which is why they're doing this strange thing with the government arm of Qatar is because it's 49% by an airline, but the rest can be owned by a foreign entity. So they're dividing up 49% gets to Qatar Airways and 51% gets to basically the sovereign fund in a certain way. Uh, we, we know that in the US, it's, um, I think it's what, 24%, 25% is it the maximum low, foreign ownership? Yeah. 
I was looking for some numbers and I found that uh, there's a very few countries that allow uh, 100%. Chile is one. Australia is another one. South Korea is at, I think, 40, uh, 50 or 49. Uh, the EU is also at 49, so high. And then you have litany of countries. You know, Japan is around 35. And then Brazil is even lower than the US. It's interesting. It is. Uh, yeah. So uh, Vistara, that's the one between Vistara, yes, the Tata, Tata Group and Singapore Airlines. And that's a very equitable split. Singapore Airlines own 49% of it, and Tata own the remaining 51%. I wonder how they're oh, doing. See, no, I've not followed up at all. I should, but I don't fly to India. I've flown once. I wish I could, but yeah, I need to get I've back not to had India. the opportunity. You should do another episode of Atish. We'd like to. We done, definitely want to. You've done Mumbai. You should do Delhi or maybe go into South and do, you know, all the region of, yeah. well, so many places you could go with <laughs> <laughs> uh, since we're on these airlines and Emirates, uh, United, so we, we said that Emirates was opening this route from Newark uh, to Athens and back, Athens in Greece and not in Georgia. <laughs> and uh, United announced that uh, they will have employees protesting on the ground in Newark uh, for, uh, yeah, it seems a bit like organized. Yeah. We will ask it's our employees weird. to protest, please. Still on Emirates. You know, they've been asking for the 380neo for a long time, for re-engined A380, Airbus 380. The CEO of Airbus basically says that it's not going to happen. We have studied the possible evolution of the A380neo aircraft, and we came to the conclusion that the time was not yet there to launch it. So that's not happening now, at least. And we know that the 380 is not uh, selling, but... They're coming up with another plan, a cunning plan from Airbus. They're coming with the A380 Plus, which is basically the same aircraft, but instead of having that huge staircase in the front, which is pretty majestic, actually, and uh, the bar and other amenities in the back, they will basically put a lot of seats. I guess they will have one of these, you know, staircases like you find on the upper deck of the 747. Okay. A smaller footprint. And they say that by doing that, they can add 40 to 50 more economy seats so that uh -huh. uh, if you go with a similar mix as most airlines are doing today, instead of having 490, 500 passengers, you could go to like 550 to 600 by still you know, having some businesses. I'm not talking about all economy. And I'm sure some airlines will be interested. Yeah, I th I'm, I'm sure there will be. I mean, we talked about the fact that the age of the very large jet was over, but I don't think it can be if they're seriously exploring options like this. No, I don't know what the legroom will be in those. I don't know what the legroom is on Hawaiian, uh, but you sent me that story about that guy who got completely nuts because of a fee for, uh, what was it? A blanket? Blanket, yeah. This, so they were flying from LA to, or no, Vegas to Hawaii somewhere. And the plane had to divert to LA because this passenger flipped out that he was going to have to pay 12 bucks for a blanket. And I can understand being a little bit upset to your cold and you, you ask for a blanket and they say, okay, yes, sure, that'll be 12 bucks. But he threatened a flight attendant, which is a federal offense in the United States. So they diverted. And I think it was probably a good choice because you've got five or six hours or whatever it is over water. And you don't know if this guy's going to get crazier and crazier or if he's going to chill out. So they diverted. They said that no crime was committed. Eventually, he wasn't arrested. He was... Like, yeah, the sentence he uses... Uh, now I found the article in front of me. Uh, you would like to take someone behind the woodshed for this. Which is kind of a old-timey <laughs> threat, but it's still a threat. Um, and again, I still think they made a good choice. They pulled him off the flight, and they questioned him, and they said he didn't commit a crime, and they let him go. And I guess just a few hours later, he 
he took another flight. Happier stories. That I really love that. There was a couple flying from Chicago to Munich, and they left $166,000. Who does that? In the overhead compartment. <laughs> like, why would you take that? That's spare money, Alex. I, oh. you know, I, you know, it's, I don't. I'm not hanging know, out with realize. the right people, I guess. <laughs> but you know what? I like that the fact that the, the money was returned to them. That and is apparently, it was not nice spare thing. money. It was literally money that they got from inheritance, and they just forgot about it. Maybe they were still upset about the death of a relative. Maybe that's pocket money for uh, Al Baker. Let's go back to Al Baker, to our friend, <laughs> the head of Qatar Airways. <laughs> uh, he's. Uh, he says that he will not take delivery of any Airbus A320neo because he wants to go uh, instead for 321neos. The 321 is proving really, really successful. It there is. was uh, an article on marketexclusive.com. The title is, says it all, Airbus A321neo kicking Boeing Max 9 butt. <laughs> but if you look at the numbers, uh, well, yeah, uh, the, the Max 8 is successful, so which basically is the equivalent of the 320neo. But the Max 9, if you look at the numbers of airframes being sold, it's really lagging. Yeah, Boeing just rolled out the first uh, Max 8, uh, so it's you've got to be able to see the skies. Yeah, Southwest and just took the first one. Are they replacing all their fleet with that? I think slowly, yeah. Uh, they just, I think a couple of days ago, they just took the first one. The day they were rolling out the Max 8, this already is talking now about the Max 10X, which is an even larger version of the Max 9, which would be the competitor to the 321neo, actually. Uh, but right when they started announcing it, some of the lessers are saying, yeah, it's a very bad idea. You're not going to go anywhere with it. The 321neo is still a better aircraft. Boeing seems to be like in a corner there. Yeah, yeah, they are. And I think that they've, the, because the 321 has had success as an existing airframe, adding the additional capacity and additional efficiency is really proving very, very attractive to a lot of people. Um, they must be doing something on price as well. They must be doing something on price. Uh, we already mentioned his name, the executive chairman of Air Lease Corp, which is one of the largest leasing companies of airframes in the world. Uh, Stephen Udvarhazy uh, suggested that the uh, Max 10X exists only because of the failure of the Max 9 to prove competitive with the 321neo. Yeah. <laughs> which I tell us, because if that guy, that guy is almost a market mover, if he says, that he doesn't like an aircraft, the aircraft manufacturers are listening. Yeah, There's a, a, an alternative view if you go on fool.com, which says that, well, yeah, maybe, but at the same time, the whole program, the 737 MAX, is actually one of the fastest-selling uh, commercial jets in history. Boeing would be crazy to now start overhauling the entire program. They should just get on with it. It will be successful in the end. They shouldn't actually change their, their strategy. Yeah, and we also have to remember that orders don't necessarily mean deliveries. Correct. People convert an order for 10 A320s to four 777s and vice versa. So until the plane is in the sky... It's a good indicator, but it's not the end of the story. But the 321neo, the long-range version, could be something that would change the competition over the Atlantic. Yeah. Because JetBlue is thinking about introducing routes from the US to Europe because of that aircraft. Yeah, they've been humming and hawing about this for a long time. And there was rumors that they were going to announce A330 orders a couple of years ago. But they're already big operators of the A321, and I'm, I think I'm going to be taking it uh, over the summer, Transcon. And so if you say with a slightly different version of what you already operate, you could fly to Europe 
then you can see how that much more elegantly fits into their existing fleet strategy and opens up a whole new level of or a whole new market to them. So we'll see. Mint from London to the US? That would be nice. Yeah, because from what I can see, Mint is a hell of a product and it's already being touted as the best value premium product in the US. And I can see it. I can absolutely see it. So hopefully I can come back in a few months with a field test report. Well, I hope so. I'd be very jealous, but I really hope so you do that. Uh, let's stay a little bit more on our crafters. Well, there was a very interesting article in the Seattle Times where they said there's a fire burning in a wide body market saying that, you know, the 777ER was uh, released 12 years ago. And that's exactly usually the cycle for leasing. We just mentioned leasing, which means that a lot of these will might come back into the market and will hit uh, Boeing where it hurts because Boeing really hopes to sell a lot of the 777X. And that there might be, and that also includes Airbus, there might be a glut in the, the wide body market and that maybe we'll see all these hopes of selling big wide body aircraft being crushed in the next three years. Do you think we'll see like these manufacturers suffer? I'm not sure. I, I, I think of all airplanes, the 777-300 has a huge opportunity for secondary market and secondary leases. They're still extremely efficient airplanes and they'll have low cycles, high time, but low cycles. 12 to 13, that's sprightly for a plane these days. So I think that there's definitely going to be a secondary market. Now for Boeing, I'm not sure because they said that they will reduce deliveries of the 777 from 100 a year nowadays to 40 only in uh, next year. They might be suffering because, like you said, they're all in mind condition. So why would you buy a new one where there's so many that could come back on the market? Yeah, but I, I see. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure because we've talked a lot about the growth in Southeast Asia, especially in China. They're going to need airplanes. And yes, they may pick them up on the secondary market, but the planes that are coming off lease cycles from these, if you will, tier one airlines, they're going to need to be replaced. And I think that if you do see a downturn, it's going to be temporary because that goes against every other trend that we're seeing in, in air traffic and air travel and aviation and cargo miles, all of that. So the, there's going to need to be airplanes to pick up that slack. The same guy I just mentioned uh, called the next plane the 797. Yes. So that's not a plane that exists yet. I know we both like the uh, 757 and the 767. I've flown, again, one BA 767 from Madrid to uh, London. It's a nice experience. Boeing is thinking about what should they do there? Should they introduce a new plane or not? Again, 797 is just a code name not by Boeing. Boeing calls it Mom's. So mom is not soccer mom. Mom <laughs> is middle of the market plane. What do you think about that? Do you think Boeing will actually deliver on a new aircraft that would be standing, you know, in this kind of uh, 230 to 260 yes, seats? You know, absolutely. Yeah. There is a damn good reason why between them, American, Delta and United have 220 757s with an average age of 22 years. They yes, do not yeah. want to get rid of those airplanes because they serve a very specific market very, very well. And those things aren't going to be the most efficient airplanes in the sky either. So from what I understand, Boeing and, and United sat down and looked at, and Delta and American, but I think it was United that sort of came out so enthusiastically about this middle of the market concept to sit around what the 757 and 767 does. I think we all thought, including the manufacturers, that the 321 and the 900 Max, et cetera, would do that. But clearly not, yeah. because while mm -hmm. American yeah. has ordered a bunch of A320s and A321s, they're still enthusiastic about this idea of a, of a middle of the market. I think it would be cool. I think it's pretty likely to happen. I mean, Boeing have got to do something. They can't just keep iterating on the same airframes. 
it's interesting that there's almost like a difference of philosophy here because Airbus is clearly pushing in narrow bodies and saying your know, 320s, 21s, and all this will actually solve your problem. That 797, let's call it like this, would be a wide body, like a, a twin airplane. It's, it's almost a different philosophy. Do you think Americans like these airlines are used to have, you know, twin airplanes and that's why they want to go further with it? I don't know. I don't know either. But you remember that Delta, all three of those airlines use 757s on international routes as well. You often Correct. see yeah. 757s at Heathrow, Manchester, Dublin, even in, in the west of England as well. And I think that really shows the versatility of that airplane, that it can be dispatched all over the world, especially for American-based yeah. airlines. And it's high capacity, it's relatively efficient, nothing compared to what we have today. But So you can see why it would pique the interest of people that are so dependent on that type of airplane right now. And for those AV geeks, I've never flown in one. There was at uh, one point the Airbus A310, and that was a twin ail, a small twin ail. They never went back to that kind of design, sadly. I love twin ail aircrafts. To Me too, yeah, I think it makes everyone's <laughs> life a little bit easier. Swiss was the launch and still is the launch customer of the um, Bombardier CS100. Interestingly, they are transforming the last, the remaining five, I think, to larger CS300. So you guys in Europe will also be able to try the CS300 if you fly Swiss soon. I know the CS100 can go to London City. Can the CS300? I assume it must be able to. I think so too, uh, because you want to fly it there, right? <laughs> I want to fly it, period. But yes, it's it, that's where they fly to right now for, from the UK. Uh, let's go to Cyprus. So Cyprus, I used to live there. Uh, no, guys, it's not because my last name is Greek that I have any relationship with Cyprus. I just used to live there. We mentioned uh, in like, wow, a year ago at least, that uh, there was a startup airline that was trying to fill the hole that the demise of uh, Cyprus Airways left. Apparently, they're still going. Cobalt, they're called. Yeah, but they seem to be Cyprus going well. Oh, I didn't know. But Cyprus Airways is rising like a phoenix. Is apparently, again, alive. Yeah, it is. It's this airline, Charlie Airlines, based in Larnaca, have taken the name Cyprus Airways from the formerly... So they're a completely separate entity. They've just taken the name. And it was founded by S7 Airlines, who are a yeah. Russian carrier we talked about. I think we talked about in the last episode. And yeah. they're part of, part of One World. They, they seem to be very good. And yeah, they seemed, yeah. they set up this airline called Charlie Airlines. And then a year ago, they won this competition to use the Cyprus Airways for up to 10 years. And they just got their AOC three days ago, their, their air operator certificate, and they should be starting to sell tickets very, very soon. So, so that's great. And you and I both immediately commented that the livery that they've picked oh, wow. is stunning. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's a, so, guys, I mean, I'll put a picture, but it's a blue-green livery. There's like an olive branch that goes around the aircraft. And the typography of Cypress Airways is also yeah. uncommon. That makes it so interesting. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's I, I wish stunning. them the best of luck. Yeah, me too. And probably S7 was interested because there's a lot of, uh, actually, uh, Russians that go to Cyprus from Russia. And I think that's also maybe why uh, that's a route that could make sense. I'm not sure. But anyway, good luck to S7 and good luck to the new Cypress Airways. Yes. Talking about going to Highlands for holidays, uh, San Martin, that WestJet aircraft that was, I mean, it, was it really low? It looked low. It looked really low. The pictures Some, are pretty incredible. There's a 737 captain that says, and he flies the same aircraft on the same route, and he says, 
Well, it looks like it was probably roughly 50 feet above water. That's 15 meters, guys. That's that seems really low. Yeah. And this wasn't some, as you say, this wasn't some someone on the beach after six or seven Mai Tais. This was a seven... Well, he may have had seven... <laughs> but, uh, he was a 737 <laughs> captain who is very familiar with this approach. And gosh, he said to be that low and not over the runway is downright dangerous. But then, of course, WestJet denies and says, no, everything was fine. Yeah. I don't think that aircraft was at the right height for that approach. Yeah, I, so I, I mean, I've never been there, but I've, I'd love to know if there's ILS at St. Martin and if they were on a visual approach or if they were on an instrument approach. If I've never been. I'd love to know a little bit more. Well, thankfully, of course, guys, there was no incident or accident. Everything went fine. It's just that the video is stunning to see because we rarely see an aircraft so close to water. Another very close call. Was that airliner meant to be underneath me? That was Harrison Ford. Yeah, <laughs> asking Harrison Ford. ATC. <laughs> Where was that? John Wayne Airport, I think, uh, in California. He didn't take the right runway to land. That's yeah, he landed right? on a taxiway. <laughs> no way. Um, <laughs> he was supposed to land on a runway that runs parallel to the to the taxiway. You know, and I don't think it's easy to say, oh, old man, what was he doing? But because he's a very, uh, very, purpose, very yeah. experienced pilot. And I guess there's been a lot of conjecture and speculation and analysis of this. And I guess could have happened to anybody, but it still doesn't take away from the seriousness of this incident. If you guys want to have these kind of experiences, but in a very safe environment, besides going to do uh, fear of flying courses with airlines around the world, uh, I stumbled upon by accident this app called Prepare for Impact on iPhone. It was developed by a university in Udine, or in Italy. It's an app that uh, allows you to be in situations where an aircraft would crash, land on water, fire in the plane, and you're so you're seated at a seat, and you're supposed to, uh, you know, untie your seatbelt and stuff like that so there's no like blood spilling or whatever guys this is not the doom or <laughs> it's just a game to kind of put you in context of what you should do yeah. in case an aircraft it's not perfect i kind of aced it because you know some of these things you know like oh no you're not supposed to take your carrying yeah. on when you leave the aircraft but it's it's a pretty cool idea i wish that existed and i'm not sure i should ask these guys that existed like in a vr environment because that would make more sense i feel like you're really in the aircraft being on fire have you tried it no i haven't i kind of want to know i'm fascinated <laughs> let's stay in italy that headline just caught my eye Alitalia must find 1 billion euros to have a future. They're losing 2 million euros a day. If by end of March they don't find financing, they're gone. Yikes. <laughs> a good investment by Etihad, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a cheap shot. Well, but wow. No, I don't I don't think it was because we've we've talked about this and a lot of those things are not looking good the investments that they've made. It sucks because we talked about this at least a year ago and they unveiled a new long-haul cabin on their A330 in the business class, and it looked really, really good. And it we, still has very good reviews. It, it and is it has good, really good reviews, and we thought, maybe this is it. Maybe this is finally turning around. I've talked about them from City on the Short Haul product, which specifically in the Short Haul product out of City was good. It was mediocre on the domestic. But you just think, man, it, this is clearly mismanagement. It can't be. The product is good. You know, they're the national carrier. What is going on? What is happening? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure Alitalia is flying to the U.S. as well, right? They certainly fly <laughs> to the East Coast. New York. Well, so the story, you know, the story that keeps following us that we have to mention every episode that 
travel ban. So the new travel ban was signed. Uh, and we are recording today, as you hinted earlier, March 17th. And yesterday, March 16th, that same travel ban was again struck down by a judge in Hawaii. I think it's suspended. So it's back in force. I don't know. What's going on right now? So again, guys, if you're flying to the U.S., apparently it's fine. But you, Alex, haha, because you're American, so you were always like out of this discussion. You're like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't, you know, I don't care. <laughs> no, no, no. He cares. Alex cares. A very I do caring care. Person. But I've read something very actually stunning that it's not only people from abroad like me that have to give their social media passwords, but they ask that to U.S. citizens as well now. Yes, this is very odd. And I think what's distressing beyond the actual practicalities of this is that it seems so fluid. There's no structure, there's no predictability, there's no documentation, or you don't know what to expect, which is why we asked in the last few episodes if you've had an experience to let us know. So I don't know when am I going to the U.S. next. I'm sure by the summer at the very latest I'll be going to the U.S. I'm sure I'll be going before then and I'll report back. I always go into the U.S. on my U.S. passport because that's the law. So I'll let you know what happens. And I will be taking some domestic flights as well. So I'll let you know what happens there as well. I want not to talk about a travel ban every time we do a show, but, you know, it's just coming up on the feeds all the time and everybody talks about it. You found that actually Emirates has a very stunning number about that. The interest of traveling to the U.S. has lowered. I mentioned that, I think, the last episode about, you know, some studies and surveys that had been done, but this is an actual number by an airline. 35% drop-off in bookings to the U.S., and that's just Emirates. And if you consider the size of Emirates and the number of cities and frequencies they now have to the U.S., that's not a small number. But I think it points to a broader trend of these aren't people that are affected by the travel ban. So it's not to say that that 35% uh, of these passengers are from the six countries that are are banned. It's this broader trend in the Arab world to go, you know, I don't think I want to go to the U.S. anymore, which is from an American tourism perspective is deeply, deeply worrying. Uh, I was talking about the app that allows you to feel in a plane that's crashing. Uh, There's no app for that. That story about this woman who had her headphones suddenly exploding on her face. That's terrifying. They didn't release the brand, uh, maybe on purpose, I don't know. They say it's a battery. Obviously, it's a battery. Lee-ion, always lithium-ion batteries. Wow. Yeah, it just, I mean, and the pictures are terrifying. She's got this sort of black inside of her face, and I think she had minor injuries, but it must have been terrifying for this pop and then smoke and then flames to come off on the side of your face. And I don't know whether they were damaged or they were knockoffs or what. Like you said, they didn't mention the brand, but... Really worrying. And again, just I think this is a problem that's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, just with the propensity for devices to have these new types of batteries and the less than stringent quality control that goes along with them. Yeah, I really hope it was a knockoff and not one of these, because first of all, I don't want to have airlines having to ask us oh, to basically yeah, not, to not use, use our them exactly. Or not use any, basically, device that has a lithium-ion, you know, battery in it. Because they specifically said it was a battery problem, and apparently the battery was removable. So it must be... I get. I don't know. I, I'm not going to speculate on the brand. And maybe again, it's just a cheap knockoff brand that you yeah. find. But it's. And it's, it's, I think if it's put... not, it's even more worrying than if it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure the authorities will know. I mean, you know, because you know, if it's you know a big brand, if it's the phone clearly looks like Samsung, but the Samsung for once has nothing to do. Yeah, with it's kind of, well, yeah. You'd hope not. <laughs> well, I hope not. Yeah, I, I'm sure the authorities. You know, if it was a very large brand, very well-known, they would have to release something and talk to... It's yeah, not, I mean, not we saw not how anything. aggressive they were with, with a, the Samsung the devices, 7, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It led to a fire that the crew had to extinguish first with trying with their feet and then they poured water on it. So, yeah. holy shit, holy cow. Yeah. Headphones, you need that to listen to our show. <laughs> so, I hope yours will not be exploding. Uh, very few, uh, because we're about to close this show, a few more stories. Uh, we had like uh, another few reviews, but we had our first ever, we never asked for it, but thank you so much. Our first ever uh, Facebook review on our Facebook oh, yeah. page, five stars from Ian. Passionate, fun, and informative. Always a good listen. Thank you so much, Ian. That's very kind of you. Uh, another review on iTunes, five stars by, I don't have the name in front of me. I suck. I forgot to, to write it down in my show notes. I, I, I will be saying your name in the next episode. I'm really sorry. Love being to geek out on airports, planes, and airlines with you. Alex and Paul uh, hosts are entertaining, informative. The one thing that is interesting is that that person, he or she, uh, says that Started listening while we were inviting people somewhere. We had probably either Tony Tyler or Mark, the 747 pilot, and says that we should have more guests, and it's yeah, true. Yeah, I agree. It's something that we've talked about in the past, and I think the only barrier that we have is uh, there's certainly loads of people that we'd love to have uh, as part of the conversation. It's just Paul and I struggle enough as it is to sync our own schedules and bringing a third person in will just take a bit more time. But we definitely want to do that because we'd love to hear. And weirdly, or perhaps not uh, entirely coincidentally, our highest rated and most listened to episodes are the ones where it's somebody else talking. Yeah. Uh, Alex and myself sat down uh, earlier this week to talk about some stuff related to the show and one of the objectives and to have guests and to find a way to have guests every four or six shows. Yes. I cannot promise you something. We have actually people that have even shown interest from the airline industry, so we will have them, we promise. We just have to figure a way that we can stick with it. We don't want to end up in the same situation as last year where we suddenly for four months we didn't record one quote that I love about this review. I fly a lot around the world and my girlfriend sincerely thanks you as I now don't have to talk to her about planes, <laughs> seats and airlines all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> also, XTP Media, so Aviation Extended, said, uh, whilst we are off air, how about checking uh, some other programs? Uh, here's a great airline and travel podcast. Highly recommended. Thank you so much. LA Flyers said, congrats on your 50th episode. Keep it up and thanks for your efforts. Also love the refreshed format. Thanks a lot. Oh, and stick with the fast-paced format. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> your ramblings are appreciated. Ed Parsons' great episode uh, explains the crazy designs of Narita. And uh, Ashley Quint at Luxury Traveled uh, also says, great episode guide. One thing that I don't do enough, but you do, is go on Reddit, on the subreddit Aviation. I actually found a few people talking about us there while just checking. And uh, I would mention one username KOVY17, in my opinion. One of the best podcasts for airline is uh, Layovers. Thank you so oh, wow. much. We That's appreciate nice that uh, a lot. Uh, talking about podcasts, two podcasts I stumbled upon because I've, I've had some requests of what the other podcasts you listen to, Aviation Extended, Omega Tau, Dots, Lines, and Destinations. There's a few others in this space that are cool. I usually uh, listen when I run. I think that Alex does the same thing. I do indeed. <laughs> uh, Yankee Flyer, pretty cool podcast. They have already 30 episodes. I kind of enjoy that. And welcome to the World of Podcasts to Flight Radar 24. Yes. They just launched their own podcast called AV Talk. I'm sure it's going to be very successful. I've subscribed to it. You guys should do too. Now, though, if you want to uh, actually listen to cool stuff whilst you're working, uh, usually when I work, I always have my headphones on with music. And thanks to Rich Oakley, whom you met in Cape Town, 
Listen to the Clouds. Oh my God, that changed my life. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the founder is called Anders Aberg. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced your last name. And it's a mix of APIs that allows you to listen to some background music whilst listening to most available ATCs in the world. It's so, so, towers. so cool. Beautiful ah, interface my. as well. And just a nice, really clever, beautifully designed. Well done. And for AV Geeks, very good news for you, Alex. San Francisco gets... Yes. <laughs> this beautiful observation get? deck. Ah, this is... Wow. This is rare in the US. It is. It, it really is. And I think San Francisco has gone through this 15, 20-year upgrade process. And they're taking the old, sadly, because it was quite a beautiful building, the old tower that I've been up into many, many times that sits on top of Terminal 2. They're taking it down. and they're But they are going to replace it with something amazing. They're going to replace it with a, a viewing area, which is great. San Francisco as a spotter's location is already amazing because you've got the Bayshore path that runs along the side of the approaches into both sets of runways. But this will just make it even better. Does Dusseldorf has an observation view? Does Dus? Um, I am not one hundred percent sure because when I went there, it was freezing, uh, <laughs> so I I don't know. But it is a good airport for spotting because it does get an extraordinary mix of airplanes. In fact, when I taxied in there from London City, there was a Singapore Airlines A three hundred and fifty and a Cathay A three hundred and fifty sitting right next to each other, and that was the first time I'd ever seen two of them together because they're still reasonably rare. But it and there was a Qatar. Dreamliner. There was a lot of different things as well as, as you mentioned earlier, it's a big airport for Air Berlin and Lufthansa operations. There's a lot of movement there. Really, really impressive. Like I said earlier, Düsseldorf is also the airport that is immediately the third airport for the Lufthansa strategy because so now Lufthansa, the plan was to say, okay, everyone will get Eurowings and will focus Lufthansa as a more premium brand that will be located mostly in Frankfurt and Munich. When I say mostly is that then they said, it, okay, Düsseldorf will also have some of the Lufthansa products. Yes. This is a strategy. It's ongoing. I think it's, it's the only airport that has a Lufthansa long haul route, which is to Newark, outside of the two big Frankfurt yeah, and Munich. Probably, oh, yeah, probably because of the really heavy, as I said at the top of the show, the economical impact of the yes. region. The Rhine region is actually, it's not a city, but it's like a, if you look at um, Europe, you know, at night, you know, the satellite images, that region is one of the regions that is most lit. It shows a lot of economical activity going on there, but it's not like a one massive city. Right. It's not like, you know, the concentration like London or Paris or Madrid. It's really like a group of scattered towns and cities together that make up this really big, fat group of network of places. That's why Dusseldorf is actually important. And I, But I, myself, I've been to Dusseldorf so long ago that I, I cannot tell if it's nowadays a good airport or yeah, not. I'm it sure was. it is. And, and, and again, like it, it seems strategically important because just the breadth of airlines. Like I saw an Iraqi Airways plane land. I also saw a Mahan Air A340-300 land. That was the first time I'd ever seen that in the flesh, that airplane or that airline. They're another Iranian airline. It's an important geographic airport as well because it's close to the Middle East relatively compared to, to the UK. It's, it has actually very good pricing. I was yes. looking once to, to yeah, go to... Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of yeah, the airports right. that I always start when I'm doing my, my Google Correct. flights. Same. Like, I don't want to pay the ridiculous UK airport APD. So let's try Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Dusseldorf, Dublin, and Something, yeah. a few others. But Dusseldorf <laughs> is always in there. Always get, there, yeah. And I always found great routes from uh, great prices, yeah. great quotes from there to... 
of course, with the Middle Eastern careers, but not only, also from others, even sometimes from simply going with one world and you go back to London stupidly, but then you have like a huge rebate on your same flight if you were to take off from London. So like, there's a lot for that. It's very important. Yeah. But how was the experience within it? Did you like it? Yeah, it was fine. It? It It was very functional, very clean, very efficient. The terminal that I went in and out of was going through some fairly substantial renovations. So some of the amenities weren't available, but as an airport experience, it was very similar to Munich and Frankfurt but just a little bit smaller. What I loved, absolutely loved, and my destination was actually Cologne. I was trying to get to Cologne, and Cologne is underserved from London. You had to go out of Luton or Stansted, but Dusseldorf was very easy. You go through one of the other terminals onto a monorail, but it's a hanging monorail, like a, one of those awesome hanged-on roller coasters. Wow. Yeah, so this thing, <laughs> this thing, it's fully a- autonomous. It's hanging down, and so you're sort of, you pull out of the station, and all of a sudden you're just dangling over the airport city, and you go through, and there's, it takes you to this very good railway station with all of the wonderful intercity German services, the ice trains and all of that. And I was in Cologne in no time. So the the train station was built into the airport just as it should be. And it just made it a no-brainer to fly into Dusseldorf over over faffing around trying to get from my house in Kent all the way to Luton or Stansted. That level of kind of infrastructure consideration was really, really impressive. So I liked it. I thought it was really, really good. Would you stay there for a layover? Yeah, would you I would. I'd be just to ride back and forth on the roller coaster monorail. Um, <laughs> but again, I, I really do feel like I'm going to be going back and forth there a lot because, you know, as we've just mentioned, it does unlock a lot of premium fares, especially to Southeast Asia. Again, Absolutely. it was a comfortable, functional availability of food was good and varied and reasonably priced. Uh, yeah, I was really impressed with it. Great for spotting in terms of what comes through there. So yeah, really, really impressive airport. I mean, like I said, I'm amazed we haven't covered it so far. Well, there you go. We did. Now, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I hope to fly it because even though we just said that I found a lot of nice routes and nice prices from there, I've actually not been in recent yeah. years. So I will definitely want to, to try it and actually want to try that <laughs> monorail thing. Yeah, super cool. Look <laughs> at pictures of it. It's amazing. <laughs> well, that I'm a big fan of trains as well. So I will definitely try that. On that, Alex, uh, we'll see, guys. Uh, we might record uh, another show back-to-back, as in in a few days, and release it later on whilst Alex is uh, in Hong Kong, then in Ishigaki, I hate you, I don't <laughs> want to talk to you anymore. And whilst I'm then myself, uh, Dubai, Geneva, Athens, and Paris in the Val d'Isère, actually. Uh, ah, so there's okay. a lot of destinations. So we will see if we can record another one. Otherwise, this will be... You'll have to be patient with us until we see each other again. But we'll have a lots, lots, lots of about. stories to share, for sure. On that, Alex? Safe travels, travels. guys.